Part one of Book three of Part four of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume five by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand. Translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book three, Part one. Paris, Rue d'Enfer. 9th May, 1833. I have brought the sequence of the most recent facts up to this day. Shall I at last be able to resume my work? This work consists of the different portions of these memoirs which are not yet finished, and I shall have some difficulty in applying myself to them again ex abrupto, for my head is filled with the things of the moment. I am not in the mood suited for gathering my past in the calm where it is sleeping, agitated though it was when in the state of life. I have taken up my pen to write. What on and what about, I know not. On glancing through the journal in which for the last six months I have kept a record of what I do and of what happens to me, I see that most of the pages are dated from the Rue d'Enfer. The small house which I occupy near the barrier may be worth 60,000 francs or so, but at the time of the rise in the price of ground I bought it much dearer, and I have never been able to pay for it. It was a question of saving the Infirmerie de Marie-Thérèse, founded by the care of Madame de Chateaubriand, and adjoining the house. A company of builders was proposing to establish a café a Montagne Russe in the aforesaid house, a noise which does not go very well with the death agony. Am I not glad of my sacrifices? Certainly. One is always glad to succour the unfortunate, I would willingly share the little I possess with those in need, but I do not know that this disposition amounts to virtue in my case. My goodness is like that of a condemned man, who is lavish of that for which he will have no use in an hour's time. In London the convict whom they are about to hang sells his skin for drink. I do not sell mine, I give it to the grave-diggers. Once the house was bought, the best that I could do was to live in it. I have arranged it as it is. From the windows of the drawing-room one sees first what the English call a pleasure-ground, a proscenium consisting of a lawn and some blocks of shrubs. Beyond this enclosure, on the other side of wall, the height of a man's breast, surmounted by a white lozenge fence, is a field of mixed cultivation, reserved for the provender of the cattle of the infirmary. Beyond this field comes another piece of ground, separated from the field by another breast-high wall in green open-work, interlaced with viburnums and Bengal roses. These marches of my state embrace a clump of trees, a meadow, and an alley of poplars. This nook is extremely solitary. It does not smile to me like Horace's nook, Angulus Ridet. On the contrary, I have sometimes shed tears there. The proverb says that youth must have its fling. The decline of life also has some freaks to overlook. Les pleurs et la pitié, sorte d'amour, ayant ses charmes. My trees are of a thousand kinds. I have planted twenty-three cedars of Lebanon and two druid oaks. They make game of their short-lived master, Brevum Dominum. A mall, a double avenue of chestnuts, leads from the upper to the lower garden. The ground slopes rapidly along the field between. I did not choose these trees, as at the Vallée aux Loups, in memory of the spots which I have visited. He who takes pleasure in recollection cherishes hopes, 
but when one has no children nor youth nor country what attachment can one bear to trees whose foliage flowers fruits are no longer the mysterious numerals employed in the calculation of the periods of illusion in vain people say to me you are growing younger do they think that they will make me take my wisdom teeth for my milk teeth and even the latter have been given me only to eat a bitter loaf under the royalty of the seventh of august for the rest my trees are not much interested to know whether they serve as a calendar for my pleasures or as a death certificate of my years they increase daily from the day that i decrease they wed those of the grounds of the foundling hospital and the boulevard d'enfer which surround me i do not see a single house i should be less separated from the world at two hundred leagues from paris i hear the bleating of the goats which feed the abandoned orphans ah if i had been like these in the arms of st vincent de paul born of a frailty obscure and unknown as they are i should to-day be some nameless workman having no concern with men nor knowing either why or how i entered life or how and why i was to quit it by pulling down a wall i have placed myself in communication with the infirmerie de marie thérèse i find myself at the same time in a monastery a farm an orchard and a park in the morning i wake to the sound of the angelus i hear from my bed the singing of the priests in the chapel i see from my window a calvary which stands between a walnut tree and an elder tree cows chickens pigeons and bees sisters of charity in black tammany gowns and white dimity caps convalescent women old ecclesiastics go roaming among the lilacs azaleas calicanthuses and rhododendrons of the flower garden among the rose trees gooseberry bushes strawberry plants and vegetables of the kitchen garden some of my octogenarian vicars were exiled with me after mingling my poverty with theirs on the lawns of kensington i have offered the grass plots of my hospice to their failing footsteps they there drag their pious old age like the folds of the veil of the sanctuary i have as a companion a fat red-grey cat with black cross stripes born at the vatican in the raphael gallery leo the twelfth brought it up in a skirt of his robe where i used to watch it with envy when the pontiff gave me my audiences as ambassador on the death of the successor of st peter i inherited the cat without a master as i have told in writing of my roman embassy they called it micetto surnamed the pope's cat in this capacity it enjoys an extreme consideration among pious souls i strive to make it forget exile the sistine chapel and the sun of michelangelo's dome on which it used to take its walks far removed from earth my house and the different buildings of the infirmary with their chapel and the gothic sacristy present the appearance of a colony or hamlet on ceremonial days religion hiding under my roof the old monarchy in my almshouse form up in marching order processions composed of all our valetudinarians preceded by the young girls of the neighbourhood pass under the trees singing with the blessed sacrament the cross and the banner madame de chateaubriand follows them beads in hand proud of the flock which is the object of her solicitude the blackbirds whistle the redbreasts warble the nightingales compete against the hymns i am carried back to the rogations of which i have described the rustic pomp from the theory of christianity i have passed to its practice my home faces west in the evening the tree-tops lighted from behind imprint their black serrate outlines on the horizon my youth returns at that hour 
it revives those lapsed days which time has reduced to the unsubstantiality of phantoms when the constellations pierce through their blue arch i remember that splendid firmament which i admired from the bosom of the american forests or the lap of the ocean the night is more favourable than the day to the traveller's reminiscences it hides from his eyes the landscapes that would remind him of the regions which he inhabits it shows him only the luminaries which look the same under the different latitudes of the same hemisphere then he recognises those stars which he contemplated in such a country at such a time the thoughts which he entertained the feelings which he underwent in the different portions of the world shoot up and fix themselves at the same point in the sky we here speak of the world in the infirmary only at the two public collections and a little on sundays on those days our hospice changes into a kind of parish church the sister superior pretends that beautiful ladies come to mass in the hope of seeing me skilful manager that she is she lays their curiosity under contribution by promising to show me to them she attracts them to the laboratory once she has entrapped them she forces sweet stuff on them willy-nilly in exchange for money she makes me serve at the sale of the chocolate manufactured for the profit of her patients even as la matiniere took me into partnership for the trade in the gooseberry syrup which he used to quaff to the success of his love affairs the sainted woman also steals stumps of quills from madame de chateaubriand's inkstand she trades in them among the thoroughbred royalists declaring that with those precious stumps were written the superb memoirs sur la captivité de madame la duchesse de berry a few good pictures of the spanish and italian schools a virgin by guerin the saint theresa the last masterpiece of the painter of corinne make us attached to the arts as for history we shall soon have at the hospice a sister of the marquis de favre and a daughter of madame roland the monarchy and the republic have sent me to expiate their ingratitude and to feed their invalids all are anxious to be received at marie therese the poor women who are obliged to leave when they have recovered their health take up their lodgings near the infirmary in the hope of falling ill again and returning to it nothing smacks of the hospital the jewess the protestant the catholic the foreigner the frenchwoman receive the cares of a delicate charity disguising itself as an affectionate relationship each afflicted woman seems to have found her mother i have seen a spaniard beautiful as dorothea the pearl of seville die at sixteen of consumption in the common dormitory congratulating herself upon her happiness looking as she smiled with great black half-dimmed eyes a pale and emaciated face at madame la dauphine who asked after her and assured her that she would soon be well she expired that same evening far from the mosque of cordova and the banks of the guadalquivir her native stream what are you a spaniard a spaniard and here we have many widows of knights of the holy ghost among our frequenters they bring with them the only thing that remains to them the portraits of their husbands in the uniform of a captain of foot a white coat with rose-pink or sky-blue facings with their hair dressed à l'oiseau royal they are put in the lumber-room i cannot look at the regiment of them without laughing if the old monarchy had survived i should to-day be adding to the number of those portraits i should be acting as the solace of my grand-nephews in some deserted gallery that's your great-uncle francois the captain in the navarre regiment he was a very witty man he wrote the riddle in the mercure beginning with the words cut off my head 
and the fugitive poem in the Almanac des Muses called Cri du Coeur. When I am tired of my gardens, the plain of Montrouge takes their place. I have seen that plain change. What have I not seen change? Twenty-five years ago, I used to pass by the Barrière du Main, when going to Merville, to the Marais, to the Vallée aux Loups. To the right and left of the road, one saw only mills, the wheels of the cranes and the stone pits, and the nursery garden of Sel, Rousseau's old friend. Desnoyers built his rooms of a hundred covers for the soldiers of the Imperial Guard, who came to clink glasses between each battle won, each kingdom overthrown. A few public houses stood round the mills, from the Barrière du Main to the Barrière du Montparnasse. Higher up were the Moulin Janssenist and Lausanne's Pleasure House, by way of a contrast. Near the public houses, acacias were planted, the poor man's shade. Even a seltzer water is the beggar's champagne. A travelling theatre fixed the migratory population of the public house balls. A village was formed with a paved street, songwriters and gendarmes, the amphions and cecropsies of the police. While the living were settling down, the dead were claiming their place. A cemetery was fenced in, not without opposition on the part of the drunkards, in an enclosure containing a ruined mill, like the Tour des Abois. There death brings every day the corn which it has gleaned, a mere wall separates it from the dancing, the music, the nightly uproar. The sounds of a moment, the marriages of an hour, separate them from infinite silence, endless night, and eternal nuptials. I often stroll through this cemetery younger than myself, in which the worms that gnaw the dead are not yet dead. I read the epitaphs. How many women between sixteen and thirty years old have become the prey of the tomb? Happy they to have lived only in their youth. The Duchesse de Gèvres, the last drop of the blood of du Gesclin, a skeleton of another age, dozes in the midst of the plebeian sleepers. In this new exile I already have old friends. Monsieur Lemoine lies there. He was secretary to Monsieur de Montmorin, and was bequeathed to me by Madame de Beaumont. He used to bring me almost every evening when I was in Paris, the simple conversation which I like so much, when it is joined to goodness of heart and singleness of character. My sick and wearied mind finds relaxation in a healthy and restful mind. I left the ashes of Monsieur Lemoine's noble patroness on the banks of the Tiber. The boulevards which encompass the infirmary share my walks with the cemetery. I no longer dream there, having no future, I have no dreams left. A stranger to the new generations, I appear to them a dusty and very bare wallet-bearer. Scarce am I covered now with a rag of dock days at which time gnaws even as the herald-at-arms used to cut the jacket of an inglorious knight. I am glad to stand aside. I like to be at a musket-shot's distance from the barrier, on the edge of a high-road, and always ready to set out. From the foot of the milestone I watch the mail pass, my image, and life's. When I was in Rome in 1828, I formed a plan to build in Paris, at the end of my hermitage, a greenhouse and a gardener's cottage, all to be paid for out of the savings of my embassy, and the fragments of antiquities found in my excavations at Torre Vergata. Monsieur de Polignac assumed office. I sacrificed to the liberties of my country a place which charmed me, relapsed into poverty. Goodbye to my greenhouse, Fortuna Vitrea Est. The evil habit of paper and ink brings about that one cannot prevent oneself from scribbling. I have taken up my pen, not knowing what I was going to write, and have scrawled this description at least a third too long. If I have time, I will cut it down. I must ask pardon of my friends for the bitterness of some of my thoughts. 
I can laugh only with my lips. I have the spleen, a physical melancholy, a real complaint. Whoever has read these memoirs has seen what my lot has been. I was not a swimmer stroke from my mother's breast before the torments had assailed me. I have wandered from shipwreck to shipwreck. I feel a curse upon my life, a burden too heavy for that hut of reeds. Let not those whom I love therefore think themselves denied. Let them excuse me, let them allow my fever to pass. Between those attacks, my heart is wholly theirs. I had written thus much on these loose pages, flung pell-mell on my table, and blown about by the wind that entered through my open windows, when they handed me the following letter and note from Madame la Duchesse de Berry. Come, let us return once more to the second part of my double life, the practical part. Play Citadel, 7th May, 1833. I am painfully annoyed at the refusal of the government to allow you to come to me, after the two requests which I have made. Of all the numberless vexations which I have had to undergo, this is certainly the most painful. I had so many things to tell you, so much advice to ask of you. Since I must relinquish the thought of seeing you, I will at least try, by the only means left to me, to send you the commission which I intended to give you, and which you will accomplish, for I rely without reserve on your devotion to my son. I charge you, therefore, monsieur, especially to go to Prague, and tell my kinsfolk that, if I refused until the 22nd of February to declare my secret marriage, my design was the better to serve my son's cause, and to prove that a mother, a Bourbon, was not afraid to endanger her life. I proposed to make my marriage known only when my son came of age, but the threats of the government, the moral tortures, driven to the utmost degree, decided me to make my declaration. In the ignorance in which I am left as to the period at which my liberty will be restored to me, after so many frustrated hopes, the time has come to give to my family, and to the whole of Europe, an explanation which shall prevent injurious suppositions. I would have liked to be able to give it earlier, but absolute sequestration and unsurmountable difficulties in communicating with the outside have prevented me until now. You will tell my family that I was married in Italy to Count Hector Lucchese Pali, of the Princess of Campo Franco. I ask you, O Monsieur de Chateaubriand, to convey to my dear children the expression of all my affection for them. Be sure to tell Henry that I rely more than ever on all his efforts to become daily worthier of the love and admiration of Frenchmen. Tell Louise how happy I should be to embrace her, and that her letters have been my only consolation. Lay my homage at the King's feet, and give my affectionate regards to my brother and my kind sister. I ask you to report to me, wherever I may be, the wishes of my children and my family. Shut up within the walls of Blay, I find a comfort in having such an interpreter as Monsieur le Vicomte de Chateaubriand. He can reckon on my attachment for all time. Marie Caroline Note I have felt a great satisfaction at the agreement that reigns between you and Monsieur le Marquis de la Tour Maubourg, as I attach a great value to this in the interest of my son. You can show Madame la Dauphine the letter which I am writing to you. Assure my sister that, so soon as I have recovered my liberty, I shall think nothing more urgent than to send her all the papers relating to political affairs. My great wish would have been to proceed to Prague, so soon as I was free. But the sufferings of all kinds that I have undergone have so greatly destroyed my health that I shall be obliged to stop some time in Italy, so as to recover a little, and not to frighten my poor children too much by the change in me. Study my son's character. 
his good qualities, his inclinations, even his faults. You will tell the king, Madame la Dauphine and myself, what there is to correct, to change, to make perfect, and you will let France know what she has to expect from her young king. Through my different relations with the Emperor of Russia, I know that he has on several occasions very favourably received propositions for a marriage between my son and the Princess Olga. Monsieur de Chulot will give you the most precise information touching the persons who are at present at Prague. Desiring to remain French above all, I ask you to obtain leave from the King for me to keep my title of Princess and my name. The mother of the King of Sardinia continues to call herself Princess of Carignan, in spite of her marriage with Monsieur de Montléard, to whom she has given the title of Prince. Marie-Louise, Duchess of Parma, kept her title of Empress, when she married Count von Nyperg, and remained the guardian of her son. Her other children are called Nyperg. I beg you to set out as promptly as possible for Prague, as I desire more eagerly than I can tell you that you should arrive in time for my family to learn all these details, only through you. I wish the fact of your departure to be as little known as possible, or at least that no one will be aware that you are the bearer of a letter from me, so as not to reveal my only means of correspondence, which is so precious, although very rare. Monsieur le Comte Lucchese, my husband, is descended from one of the four oldest families in Sicily, the only ones that remain of the twelve companions of Tancred. This family has always been noted for the noblest devotion to the cause of its kings. The Prince de Campofranco, Lucchese's father, was first lord of the bedchamber to my father. The present king of Naples, having an entire confidence in him, has placed him with his young brother, the viceroy of Sicily. I do not speak to you of his feelings. They agree with ours in every respect. Convinced as I am that the only way to be understood by the French is always to address to them the language of honour and to make them look towards glory, I have had the thought of marking the commencement of my son's reign by joining Belgium to France. Count Lucchese was charged by me to make the first overtures in this matter to the King of Holland and the Prince of Orange, and he was of great aid in obtaining a good hearing for them. I was not so fortunate as to conclude this treaty, the object of all my wishes, but I believe that there are still chances of success. Before leaving the Vendée, I gave Monsieur le Maréchal de Beaumont powers to continue this affair. No one is more capable than he to carry it to a successful issue, because of the esteem which he enjoys in Holland. M.C. Blay, 7th May, 1833. As I am not certain of being able to write to the Marquis de la Tour Maubourg, try to see him before your departure. You can tell him whatever you think fit, but in the most absolute secrecy. Arrange with him as to the direction to be given to the newspapers. I was moved at reading these documents. The daughter of so many kings, that woman fallen from so high a station, after closing her ear to my counsels, had the noble courage to apply to me, to forgive me for foreseeing the failure of her enterprise. Her confidence went to my heart and honoured me. Madame de Berry had judged me rightly. The very nature of that enterprise which made her lose all did not alienate me. To play for a throne, glory, the future and destiny is no vulgar thing. The world understands that a princess can be an heroic mother. But what must be consigned to execration? What is unexampled in history is the immodest torture inflicted on a weak woman, alone, cut off from assistance, overwhelmed by all the forces of a government conspiring against her as though it were a question of conquering a formidable power. Parents themselves abandoning their daughter to the laughter of the lackeys, holding her by her four limbs so that she may be delivered in public, 
calling the authorities from their corner the jailers spies passers-by to see the child brought forth from their prisoner's womb even as though they had called france to witness the birth of her king and what prisoner the granddaughter of henry the fourth and what mother the mother of the orphan whose throne they were occupying do the hulks contain a family so low-born as to conceive the thought of branding one of its children with so great an ignominy would it not have been nobler to kill madame la duchesse de berry rather than submit her to the most tyrannous humiliation whatever indulgence was shown in this business belongs to the century whatever infamy to the government madame la duchesse de berry's letter and note are remarkable in more than one place the portion relating to the incorporation of belgium and the marriage of henry v shows a head capable of serious things the portion concerning the family in prague is touching the princess fears that she will be obliged to stop in italy so as to recover a little and not to frighten her poor children too much by the change in her what can be sadder and more sorrowful she adds i ask you monsieur de chateaubriand to convey to my dear children the expression of all my affection etc oh madame la duchesse de berry what can i do for you i a weak creature already half broken down but how to refuse anything to such words as these shut up within the walls of blay i find a comfort in having such an interpreter as monsieur de chateaubriand he can reckon on my attachment for all time yes i will set out on the last and greatest of my embassies i shall go on the part of the prisoner of blay to find the prisoner of the temple i shall negotiate a new family compact take the kisses of a captive mother to her exiled children and present letters in which courage and misfortune accredit me to innocence and virtue a letter for madame la dauphine and a note for the two children were added to the letter addressed to me there were left to me of my past grandeurs a broom in which i had once shone at the court of george the fourth and a travelling calash built in former days for the use of the prince de talleyrand i had the latter repaired in order to make it capable of going against nature for by origin and habit it is disinclined to run after fallen kings on the fourteenth of may the anniversary of the murder of henry the fourth at half-past eight in the evening i set out in search of henry the fifth child orphan and outlaw i was not without anxiety as to my passport taken out at the foreign office it bore no description and it was dated eleven months back it had been delivered for switzerland and italy and had already served to enable me to leave france and return different visas witnessed these several circumstances i did not care either to have it renewed or to ask for a fresh one the police of every country would have been warned every telegraph set in motion the police of every country would have been warned every telegraph set in motion at every custom-house they would have searched my trunks my carriage my person if my papers had been seized what a pretext for persecution what domiciliary visits what arrests what a prolongation of the royal captivity for it would have been proved that the princess had secret means of correspondence outside it was therefore impossible for me to call attention to my departure by asking for a passport i place my trust in my star avoiding the too much beaten road of frankfurt and that of strasbourg which runs under the line of telegraphs i took the basel road with hyacinthe pilorge my secretary used to all my fortunes and baptiste my valet de chambre when i was my lord and once more plain valet on the downfall of my lordship we get in and out of the carriage together my cook the famous montmurel retired when i left the ministry declaring that he would not return to office till i did 
it had been wisely decided by the introducer of ambassadors under the restoration that any ambassador who died re-entered private life baptiste had re-entered domestic service when we reached altkirch the frontier stage a gendarme appeared and asked for my passport on seeing my name he told me that he had served in the spanish campaign in eighteen twenty three under my nephew christian a captain in the dragoons of the guard between altkirch and st louis i met a rector and his parishioners they were making a procession against the cockchafers nasty insects much multiplied since the days of july at st louis the officers of the custom-house who knew me let me pass i arrived gaily at the gate of basel where i was met by the old swiss drum-major who in the previous month of august had inflicted on me a little quarantine of a quarter of an hour but the cholera was over and i put up at the three kings on the banks of the rhine it was ten o'clock on the morning of the seventeenth of may the landlord procured me a travelling footman called schwartz a native of basel to act as my interpreter in bohemia he spoke german just as my good joseph the milanese tinman spoke greek in messenia when inquiring for the ruins of sparta on the same day the seventeenth of may at six o'clock in the evening i moved out of port as i stepped into the calash i was amazed to see the altkirch gendarme among the crowd i did not know if he had not been sent after me he had simply escorted the mail from france i gave him some money to drink to the health of his old captain a schoolboy came up to me and threw a paper to me with the inscription to the virgil of the nineteenth century it contained this passage altered from the aeneid magte animo generose puer and the postilion whipped up the horses and i drove off quite proud of my high renown at basel quite astonished at being virgil quite charmed to be called a child generose puer i crossed the bridge leaving the burgesses and peasants at war in the midst of their republic and fulfilling in their own fashion the part which they are called upon to play in the general transformation of society i went up the right bank of the rhine and contemplated with a certain sadness the high hills of the canton of basel the exile which i had come to seek last year in the alps seemed to me a happier life's ending a gentler lot than the affairs of empire in which i had re-engaged did i cherish the smallest hope for madame la duchesse de berry or her son no and i was moreover convinced that in spite of my recent services i should find no friends in prague one who has taken the oath to louis philippe and who nevertheless praises the fatal ordinances must be more acceptable to charles x than i who have never forsworn myself it is too much for a king that one should twice have been in the right flattering treachery is preferred to austere devotion i went therefore going to prague even as the sicilian soldier who was hung in paris at the time of the league went to the gallows the confessor of the neapolitans tried to put heart into him by saying on the way allegramente allegramente thus sped my thoughts while the horses were drawing me onwards but when i thought of the misfortunes of the mother of henry v i reproached myself for my regrets the banks of the rhine flying along my carriage diverted me pleasantly when one looks at a landscape out of a window even though he be dreaming of other things a reflection of the picture which he has under his eyes nevertheless enters into his mind we drove through meadows decked with the flowers of may the green was fresh in the woods orchards and hedges horses donkeys and cows pigs dogs and sheep hens and pigeons geese and turkeys were in the fields with their masters the rhine that warlike stream seemed pleased in the midst of that pastoral scene like an old soldier quartered on his march on husbandmen 
The next morning, the 18th of May, before reaching Schaffhausen, I was driven to the falls of the Rhine. I stole a few moments from the fall of kingdoms to improve myself at its image. I should have done well for myself to end my days in the castle overlooking the chasm. I placed at Niagara the dream of Atala not yet realised. I met at Tivoli another dream, already passed away upon earth. Who knows if, in the keep standing over the falls of the Rhine, I should not have found a fairer vision which, but now wandering on its banks, would have consoled me for all the shades that I had lost. From Schaffhausen I continued my road towards Ulm. The country presents tilled basins, in which detached and wooded hillocks bathe their feet. In those woods which were then being cultivated for sale, the eye saw oaks, some felled, others left standing, the first stripped of their bark where they lay, their trunks and branches white and bare, like the skeleton of a strange beast, the second bearing the fresh green of spring on their hirsute and dark, moss-grown limbs. They combine what is never found in man, the twofold beauty of old age and youth. In the fir plantations of the plain, uprootings had left empty spaces. The land had been turned into meadows. Those circuses of grass, in the middle of the slate-grey forests, have something severe and smiling, and recall the prairies of the new world. The cottages retain the Swiss character. The hamlets and inns are distinguished by that appetising cleanliness unknown in our country. Stopping for dinner between six and seven o'clock at Moskirch, I sat musing at the window of my inn. Herds were drinking at a fountain. A heifer leapt and frolicked like a roe deer. Wherever men are kind to their beasts, they are lively and love man. In Germany and England the horses are not beaten. They are not ill-treated with words. They back towards the pole of themselves. They start and stop at the least sound of the voice, at the smallest movement of the bridle rein. Of all nations, the French are the most inhumane. Do you see our postilions harnessing their horses? They drive them into the shafts with kicks of their boots in the flanks, with blows of their whip-handles on the head, breaking their mouths with a bit to make them go back, accompanying the whole with oaths, shouts and insults at the poor brute. Beasts of burden are compelled to draw or carry loads which are beyond their strength, and, to oblige them to go on, the drivers cut up their hides with twists of the thong. The fierceness of the Gauls is with us still. It is only hidden under the silk of our stockings and neckcloths. I was not alone in gaping. The women were doing as much at all the windows of their houses. I have often asked myself, when passing through unknown hamlets, Would you live here? I have always answered, Why not? Who, in the mad hours of youth, has not said with Pierre Vidal, the troubadour, Donne me d'un poc cordeau, canari moda, medo, Carré Richard apetius, niab tors, niab angius. There is matter for dreams everywhere. Pleasures and pains belong to all places. Those women of Moskir, who looked at the sky or at my posting chariot, who looked at me or who looked at nothing, had not they joys and sorrows, interests of the heart, of fortune, of family, even as we have in Paris? I should have made great progress in the history of my neighbours, if dinner had not been poetically announced to the crash of a thunderclap. That was much ado about little. 19th May, 1833. At ten o'clock at night I got into the carriage again. I fell asleep to the patter of the rain on the hood of the calash. The sound of my postilion's little horn aroused me. I heard the murmur of a river which I could not see. We had stopped at the gate of a town. 
the gate opened my passport and luggage were examined we were entering the vast empire of his Württemberg majesty i greeted in memory the grand duchess helen the graceful and delicate flower now confined in the hothouses of the volga on only one single day did i conceive the value of high rank and fortune it was when i gave the fete to the young russian princess in the gardens of the villa medici i felt how the magic of the sky the charm of the spot the spell of beauty and power can inebriate one i imagined myself both torquato tasso and alphonsus of este i was worth more than the prince less than the poet helen was more beautiful than leonora the representative of the heir francis i and louis XIV, i had the dream of a king of france they did not search me i had nothing against the rights of sovereigns i who recognised those of a young monarch which the sovereigns themselves failed to recognise the vulgarity the modernity of the custom-house and the passport formed a contrast with the storm the gothic gate the sound of the horn and the noise of the torrent instead of the lady of the castle whom i was prepared to deliver from oppression i found on leaving the town an old simple fellow he asked me for Zeke's kreutzer raising his left hand which held a lantern to the level of his grey head putting out his right hand to schwartz on the box and opening his mouth like the gills of a hooked pike baptiste wet and sick as he was could not hold himself for laughing and what was this torrent over which i had just passed i asked the postilion who cried donau the danube one more famous river crossed by me unknowingly even as i had descended into the bed of the oleanders of the eurotas without knowing it what has it availed me to drink of the waters of the mississippi the eridanus the tiber the Cephissus, the hermes the jordan the nile the guadalquivir the tagus the ebro the rhine the spree the seine and a hundred other obscure or celebrated rivers unknown they have not given me their peace illustrious they have not communicated to me their glory they will be able to say only that they have seen me pass as their banks see their waves pass i arrived at Ulm fairly early on sunday the nineteenth of may after travelling through the scene of the battles of moreau and bonaparte Eersant, who is a member of the legion of honour was wearing the ribbon this decoration obtained for us an incredible amount of consideration i wearing in my buttonhole only a little flower according to my custom passed until they heard my name for a mysterious being my mamelukes at cairo used to insist whether i would or no that i was a general of napoleon disguised as a literary man they would not give in and every quarter of an hour expected to see me put away egypt in the sash of my kaftan and yet it is among nations whose villages we have burnt and whose harvests we have laid waste that those sentiments exist i rejoiced in this glory but if we had done nothing but good to germany should we be as greatly regretted there o oh, inexplicable human nature the evils of war are forgotten we have left on the soil of our conquest the spark of life that inert mass set in movement continues to ferment because its intelligence is commencing when travelling nowadays we see the nations watching knapsack on back ready to start they seem to be waiting for us in order to place us at the head of the column a frenchman is always taken for the aide-de-camp who brings the order to march almost a clean little town with no particular character its dismantled ramparts have been converted into kitchen gardens or walks which happens to all ramparts their fortune has something in common with that of the military 
The soldier bears arms in his youth. When invalided, he becomes a gardener. I went to see the cathedral, a Gothic fabric with a tall spire. The aisles are divided into two narrow vaults, supported by a single row of pillars, so that the interior of the edifice partakes at one time of the character of the cathedral and the basilica. The pulpit has for a canopy a graceful steeple ending in a point like a mitre. The inside of this steeple consists of a newel, around which winds a helicoid vault in stone filigree work. Symmetrical spikes piercing the outside seem destined to carry candles. These used to light up this tiara when the bishop preached on feast days. Instead of priests officiating, I saw little birds hopping in that granite foliage. They were celebrating the word that gave them a voice and wings on the fifth day of the creation. The nave was deserted. In the apse of the church, two separate groups of boys and girls were receiving religious instruction. The Reformation, as I have already said, makes a mistake when it shows itself in the Catholic monuments upon which it has encroached. It cuts a mean and shameful figure there. Those tall porches call for a numerous clergy, the pomp of the celebrations, the chants, pictures, ornaments, silk veils, draperies, laces, gold, silver, lamps, flowers, and incense of the altars. Protestantism may say as much as it pleases that it has returned to primitive Christianity. The Gothic churches reply that it has denied its fathers. The Christians who were the architects of its wonders were other than the children of Luther and Calvin. 19th May, 1833 I had left Alm at noon on the 19th. At Dillingen the horses were wanting. I stayed an hour in the high street, having as a recreation the sight of a stork's nest planted on a chimney as though on a minaret at Athens. A number of sparrows had insolently made their nests in the bed of the peaceful queen with the long neck. Below the stork, a lady, living on the first floor, looked at the passers-by in the shade of a half-raised blind. Below the lady was a wooden saint in a niche. The saint would be thrown down to the pavement, the woman from her window into the grave, and the stork? It will fly away. Thus will end the three stories. Between Dillingen and Donauwurt, you cross the battlefield of Blenheim. The footsteps of the armies of Moreau over the same ground have not obliterated those of the armies of Louis Cateau's. The defeat of the great king prevails in the countryside over the successors of the great emperor. The postilion who drove me belonged to Blenheim. On coming up to his village, he blew the horn. Perhaps he was announcing his passage to the peasant girl whom he loved. She leapt for joy in the midst of the same fields where twenty-seven French battalions and twelve squadrons of cavalry were taken prisoner, where the Navarre regiment, whose uniform I have had the honour to wear, buried its standards to the mournful sound of the trumpets. Those are the commonplaces of the succession of the ages. In 1793 the Republic carried off from the church at Blenheim the colours taken from the monarchy in 1704. It avenged the kingdom and slew the king. It cut off Louis's head, but it allowed only France to tear the white flag to pieces. Nothing better conveys the greatness of Louis Cateau's than to find his memory at the bottom of the ravines dug by the torrent of the Napoleonic victories. That monarch's conquest left our country the frontiers that still guard it. The Brian scholar, to whom the legitimacy gave a sword, for a moment enclosed Europe in his antechamber, but it escaped. The grandson of Henry the Fourth laid that same Europe at the feet of France, and it remained there. 
This does not mean that I am comparing Napoleon and Louis XIV. Men of different destinies, they belong to dissimilar centuries, to different nations. One completed an era, the other began a world. One can say of Napoleon what Montaigne says of Caesar. I excuse victory in that she could not well give him over. The unworthy tapestries at Blenheim Palace, which I saw with Peltier, show the Maréchal de Talat taking off his hat to the Duke of Marlborough, who stands in a swaggering attitude. Talat nonetheless remained the favourite of the old lion. A prisoner in London, he conquered, in the mind of Queen Anne, the Marlborough who had beaten him at Blenheim, and he died a member of the French Academy. He was, says Saint-Simon, a man of middling height, with somewhat jealous eyes, full of fire and spirit, but with an incessant demon of restlessness in him, owing to his ambition. I am writing history in my calash, why not? Caesar wrote plenty in his litter. He won the battles of which he wrote. I did not lose those of which I speak. From Dillingen to Donauwurt stretches a rich plain of unequal level, in which the cornfields intermingle with the meadows. One goes closer to or further from the Danube, according to the windings of the road and the bends of the river. At that height the waters of the Danube are still yellow, like those of the Tiber. Scarce have you left the village before you see another. The villages are clean and smiling. Often the walls of the houses have frescoes. A certain Italian character becomes manifest as one goes towards Austria. The inhabitant of the Danube is no longer the peasant of the Danube. Son montant nourrissait une barbe touffue, toute sa personne velue, représente un or, mais un or mal léché. But the sky of Italy is lacking here. The sun is low and pale. Those close-sown market-towns are not the little cities of the Romagna, which brood upon the masterpieces of the arts hidden underneath them. You scratch the ground, and that tillage makes some marvel of the antique chisel shoot up like a blade of corn. At Donauwurt, I regretted to have arrived too late to enjoy a fine view of the Danube. On Monday the 20th, the same appearance of the landscape. Yet the soil becomes less good, and the peasants seem poorer. One begins again to see the pine woods of the hills. The Hersinian forest used to project as far as this. The trees of which Pliny left us a singular description were felled by generations now buried with the secular oaks. When Trajan threw a bridge over the Danube, Italy heard for the first time that name so fatal to the world of antiquity, the name of the Goths. The road was opened up to myriads of savages who marched to the sack of Rome. The Huns and the Attila built their wooden palaces opposite the Colosseum, on the bank of the stream which was the rival of the Rhine and, like the latter, the enemy of the Tiber. The hordes of Alaric crossed the Danube in 376 to overthrow the civilised Greek Empire, at the same spot where the Russians traversed it in 1828, with the design of overthrowing the barbaric empire seated on the ruins of Greece. Could Trajan have guessed that a civilization of a new kind would one day be established on the other side of the Alps, on the borders of the stream which he had almost discovered? Born in the Black Forest, the Danube goes to die in the Black Sea. Where does its chief source lie? In the courtyard of a German baron who employs the naiad to wash his linen. A geographer, having taken it into his head to deny the fact, the noble owner brought an action against him. It was decided by a judicial verdict that the source of the Danube 
was in the courtyard of the said baron and could not be elsewhere how many centuries were needed to arrive from the errors of ptolemy at this important discovery tacitus makes the danube descend from mount abnoba montes abnobi but the hermondurian cheruscan marcomanian quadian barons who are the authorities upon the russian history relies are not so cautious as my german baron eudorus did not know so much when i made him travel to the mouths of the ister where the euxine according to racine was to carry mithridates in two days having passed the ister near its mouth i discovered a stone tomb on which grew a laurel i pulled out the grasses which covered some latin characters and soon i succeeded in reading this first verse of the elegies of an unfortunate poet my book you will go to rome and you will go to rome without me the danube on losing its solitude saw recurring on its banks the evils inseparable from society plagues famines destructive fires sacks of towns wars and those divisions incessantly springing up from human passions and errors after donauwurt one comes to burkheim and neuburg at breakfast at ingolstadt they serve me with roebuck it is a great pity to eat that charming beast i have always been horrified at reading the account of the inaugural banquet of george neville archbishop of york in fourteen sixty six they roasted four hundred swans singing in chorus a funeral hymn there is also a question at that repast of four hundred bitterns i can well believe it regensburg which we call ratisbon presents an agreeable view to one approaching it from donauwurt two o'clock was striking on the twenty-first when i pulled up before the post-office while they were putting the horses to which always takes long in germany i entered a neighbouring church called the old chapel and painted white and gilded like new eight old black priests with white hair were singing vespers i had once prayed in a chapel at tivoli for a man who was himself praying by my side in one of the pits at carthage i had offered up my vows to st louis who died not far from utica and who was more philosophical than cato more sincere than hannibal more pious than aeneas in the chapel at ratisbon i had a thought of recommending to heaven the young king whom i had come to seek but i feared the wrath of god too much to ask for a crown i besought the dispenser of all mercies to grant the orphan happiness and to give him a disdain for power I hurried from the old chapel to the cathedral. It is smaller than that of Ulm, but more religious and handsomer in style. Its stained-glass windows wrap it in the darkness appropriate to contemplation. The white chapel was better suited to my wishes for the innocence of Henry. The sombre basilica made me feel quite moved for my old King Charles. I cared little for the house in which they used to elect the emperors of old, which proves at least that there were elective sovereigns, even sovereigns who were judged. The eighteenth clause in Charlemagne's will says, If any of our grandsons, born or to be born, be accused, we order that their heads be not shaved, their eyes not put out, their limbs not cut off, nor they condemned to death, without fair argument and enquiry. One emperor of Germany, I know not which, on being deposed, asked only for the sovereignty of a vineyard, for which he had an affection. At Ratisbon, in former days the factory of sovereigns, they used to coin emperors, often of inferior standard. This industry has died away. One of Bonaparte's battles and the Prince Primate, the insipid courtier of our universal gendarme, have failed to resuscitate the dying city. The Regensburgers, dressed in slovenly like the people of Paris, have no particular physiognomy. 
The town, in the absence of a sufficient number of inhabitants, is dull. Grass and thistles are laying siege to its suburbs. Soon they will have hoisted their plumes and their lances on its turrets. Kepler, who made the earth turn, as did Copernicus, sleeps forever at Ratisbon. We left by the bridge on the Prague Road, a greatly extolled and very ugly bridge. On quitting the basin of the Danube, one climbs steep inclines. Kiern, the first stage, is perched on a rough slope from the top of which, through watery mists, I discern dead hills and pale valleys. The facial aspect of the peasants changes. The children, yellow and bloated, have a sickly look. From Kiern to Waldmünchen, the poverty of the landscape increases. One sees few more hamlets, only huts made of pine logs, plastered with mud, as on the more barren necks of the Alps. France is the heart of Europe. As one goes further from it, social life decreases. A man might judge the distance at which he is from Paris by the greater or lesser languor of the country to which he is retiring. In Spain and Italy, the diminution in movement and the progress of death are less noticeable. In the former country, a new people, a new world, Christian Arabs occupy your attention. In the latter, the charms of climate and art, the enchantment of love and ruins, leave you no time for depression. But in England, despite the perfection of physical society, in Germany, despite the morality of the inhabitants, one feels oneself die. In Austria and Prussia, the military yoke weighs upon your ideas, even as the sunless sky weighs upon your head. Something, I know not what, admonishes you that you cannot write, speak, nor think with independence, that you must lop off from your existence the whole of the nobler portion, leaving man's chief faculty to lie idle within you as a useless gift of God. No arts, no beauties of nature come to beguile your hours, and there is nothing left to you but to plunge into gross debauchery or into those speculative truths in which the Germans indulge. For a Frenchman, at least for me, this manner of existence is impossible. Without dignity I fail to understand life, which is difficult to understand even with all the seductions of liberty, glory, and youth. However, one thing charms me in the German people, its religious sentiment. If I were not too tired, I would leave the inn at Nittenau, where I am pencilling this diary. I would go to the evening prayer with those men, women, and children whom a church calls with the sound of its bell. That crowd, seeing me on my knees in its midst, would welcome me by virtue of the unity of a common faith. When will the day come when philosophers in their temples shall bless a philosopher newly arrived by the post, and offer up a like prayer with that stranger, to a God respecting whom all philosophers are in disagreement? The rosary of the parish priest is safer. I stand by that. End of Book 3, Part 1